Welcome to today's episode of Fixing Healthcare. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits will go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. This season focuses on leadership. Our guest today is an expert in this area. Jenny Chapman is the acting dean of the Haas School of Business and the Paul Cortez Professor of Management at UC Berkeley. She's the editor-in-chief for the journal Research and Organizational Behavior and co-director of the Berkeley Haas Center for Workplace Culture and Innovation. Hi, Jenny, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Thanks, Robbie. Great to be here. This season is focused on leadership. Colleagues of yours have been on the podcast to discuss a variety of facets to this complex concept. Robert Bergelman from Stanford talked about strategy and how a leader had to have a strategic mindset. Amy Edmondson from Harvard discussed teaming, psychological safety, and failing wisely. I know that listeners will benefit greatly from your research in the area of organizational culture, so let me begin by asking you to define what culture is in an organizational context. Good question. The way I define culture is that it is the norms, the patterns of behaviors, the expectations that people have about the right way to do things in this organization. And norms are very, very powerful. They're unwritten rules that we're socialized to learn about, but are often a little bit under the surface. So think about eye contact. The amount of eye contact that you have with someone is a very normative behavior. You wanna gaze at someone so that you show your interest, but you don't wanna stare them down. So one question is like, how do we learn that? We learn that through our social experiences in, in the world. And interestingly, even a norm like eye contact is one that varies across societal level cultures. In some cultures, it would be rude not to literally, you know, grip eyes with someone. In another culture, that would be considered way out of hand. So we learn the norms of a situation and in organizations, these norms um, form relatively quickly and can be very, very ingrained in an organization without any deliberation. In other words, norms will form no matter what you do or don't do. That's why it's so important to pay attention to culture. Could you give some examples that might exist in a healthcare type world? Well, one norm would be how important patients are. And even though of course, you would think in healthcare, that should be the number one priority. If you look around at different healthcare organizations, you could see that some are very operationally focused. Some are very financially focused. Um, some are very focused on patients, but there is variation on that. And the way organizations prioritize 
these different normative orientations affects how able they are to execute on their strategy. Are organizational norms conscious or unconscious? Well, they can be both. Um, and, and what I say to leaders is, again, no matter what you do or don't do, norms will form. Anytime you have people meeting together on a regular basis where important things are at stake, like their work life and their reputation and you know stable employment, norms will form. The only question is whether those norms are helpful to the organization or whether they actually hurt the organization. And so my advice to leaders is always to be very deliberate in thinking about what the ideal norms would be in your organization. What behaviors should people be prioritizing in order for your organization to be as strategically effective as possible? Um, can I give you a quick example of how this works behaviorally? Please. Is it? Okay. So there was a research study done now, actually a decade, a decade and a half ago, where some epidemiologists were interested in handwashing behavior in public restrooms. And, you know, back then it was even sort of pre-COVID. So, um, so the epidemiologists were prescient in thinking about the importance of handwashing. Of course, in healthcare, people already know how important handwashing is. So these researchers set up a controlled field experiment with two conditions. In the first condition, unsuspecting members of the public at large would walk to into a public restroom, and there was apparently there there was somebody else there, a confederate of the study, and that confederate was just doing kind of normal restroom activities. And they would record the incidence of handwashing in that condition. In the second condition, unsuspecting members of the public at large would walk into a public restroom. But in this case, there was nobody else there. But the researchers installed a hidden video camera over the sinks to record handwashing behavior. And so the research question is, will we see a difference in the incidence of handwashing across these two conditions? What do you think the answer is? Uh, well, I know the research, so why don't you tell listeners about this specific example <laughs> so I don't have to guess. <laughs> I think most people out there would expect the answer would be yes. Um, but the the magnitude was rather staggering. In the first condition, when the Confederate was there, 90% of people wash their hands. That's a nine zero, which, you know, I think we all feel pretty good about because maybe the 10% who don't do it in that condition, we kind of already know who those folks are, right? So 90%, this is good, we can live with it. In the second condition, when people thought they were alone, 16% wash their hands. So why would I share this with you in a conversation about norms? Well, the question is, why? Why does is that difference so significant? You know, what what is it that causes us to do something different in the presence of another person compared to what we would have done had we been alone? Even if, note, that person is someone we don't know, we don't talk to, we'll likely never see them again in our lives. Their mere presence is enough to cause us to do something different than we would do if we were alone. And the answer is about social norms, right? What is the cost of violating shared social norms, in this case, the norm of hygiene? The cost 
you know, can be as extreme as exclusion from the social group, right? At best, you're going to be embarrassed if you break an, an important norm. At worst, you're going to be thrown out of the group. And as socially interdependent beings, being excluded from the social group is simply not an option for us. So what this means is that we all have psychologically a radar that's up trying to detect what the norms are in a particular setting. It's in some Darwinian sense, it's it's an evolutionarily adaptive thing to do, to pay close attention to the social norms in a particular setting. So then what are the implications for organizations? Well, what this tells us is no matter what the norms are in your organization, people are going to follow them. And the risk for leaders who are not deliberate in helping to establish and cultivate strategically relevant norms is that the norms that evolve kind of organically on their own may not help the organization accomplish its collective goals. And that's why it's so vital for managers to pay close attention to the norms that evolve in their teams and in their organizations. How do you differentiate norms from values or even beliefs? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's a whole academic conversation about this that I'm not sure is super important for practitioners. You know, I kind of think of values as deeper and more fundamental. They give rise to multiple norms. Um, norms are, in my mind, a little bit closer to behavior, um, kind of more, more superficial, if you will you know, the norm for risk-taking, um, you know, how willing are people to, to, to take risks and to articulate new ideas versus the general value of, of you know, innovation and creativity and change. So I, I don't know that it's a, a hugely important distinction, but I think of values as kind of more fundamental and probably changing less often, whereas behavioral norms should, by their very definition, you know, change as an organization's strategic focus changes. I'm asking because the hand-washing literature actually extends into medicine. Uh, if you ask doctors, should they wash their hands every time they see a patient, they'll all say yes. If you observe them using some of the similar kind of hidden cameras and hidden observers, about a third of the time they don't. So I was thinking about this gap between what people say what people believe versus what they do and thinking that might be a piece of the norm versus the value or the belief ones in your head and ones in your actions i don't know if that's at all appropriate but that was a thought that i had as you were speaking yeah so so here's the way i go at that distinction you can think about the content of the norm right the norm is hand washing but there's another dimension of it which is the strength of the norm which is how deeply internalized is that norm? And if it were fully internalized, everybody would be washing their hands. So what I would say is, yes, there's a norm for hand washing, but it's not that strong. And in fact, in our, in our research, we're able to tease apart the strength of a norm from you know, just what that content element is. At the same time, I imagine there can be competing norms and one of the norms is how rushed and um, frenzied doctors and nurses often have to be 
but doctors I often speak about because I feel more comfortable criticizing them than I do criticizing nurses for not hand washing. And the competing norm is we're just so busy, we're so overworked that we don't have time to do it. And so everyone, you could say it's a weaker social norm, but everyone accepts that as an acceptable answer, even though they know that that's likely to increase the chances of a patient developing a hospital-acquired infection. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I, I, I do think you're now in the realm of values. If, if people truly valued, and you use the word believe, um, that hand-washing kind of trumped everything, then they would take the extra step to figure out how to efficiently wash their hands. So maybe there would be more hand-washing stations um, located in, in for easier access. Maybe there would be you know hand sanitizer everywhere. Maybe there would be structures in place to um, promote hand-washing despite the competing priority of timeliness. Um, and so to me, again, that speaks to the strength of the hand-washing norm. People don't think it's important enough to figure out how to address it in light of some of the competing priorities. And if they did, you know, then there would be some solutions. It, uh, it seems to me not to be rocket science to figure out an even more efficient way that that physicians could find, what is it, the 20 seconds to wash their hands between patients. So Jenny, when you talk about norms, there are often negative norms that are in place at organizations that employees may feel the need to conform to, such as wanting to talk negatively about their coworkers or bosses during their lunch break so that they fit in with their coworkers. I mean, it's less common nowadays than it was decades ago, but another example would be picking up smoking so that they can hang out with other coworkers during a break and not feel excluded. They may be uncomfortable about participating in behavior like this, but they feel the desire to fit in and be accepted with the larger social groups. What are your thoughts around this and advice for people who feel the pressure of negative norms that could ultimately have a negative impact on them? Yeah, it's a really great question and it's it's a vexing problem, but you hit the nail on the head, which is that no matter what the norms are, people will want to conform to them because that's their connection to the group. And so understanding what those norms are is one thing, but realizing that you know, all norms have that, that uh, potential um, for people to, to follow them regardless of their, you know, their positivity. Um, so what I would recommend is, you know, having a sense for what the current norms are. It's really this, the same advice that I would give auditing the current norms, you know, what is it that we're prioritizing and asking for input from, from the team too. Here's our strategy. If we were fully executing on our strategy, what would our top norms be? And, and I think, you know, people would, would be able to shift their focus and think about an idealized culture in some way. And then I would engage the team in how we can get to this more idealized culture. What are the small practices that we can put in place to make it happen? And there's something magical that happens when you involve people in that process too, which is that is an act of 
developing cohesion, which is engaging people in the culture change process. So, uh, you know, my approach to something like that would be, again, what are the current norms? What would be the ideal norms? Ensuring that people have a good understanding of what that strategy needs to be going forward. And then how can we zero in on these gaps and improve things around here? And I would solicit input from the team um, and and make it happen. So, you know, maybe you could switch negative norms like, you know, we we criticize others or criticize work practices, but we can't do it without suggesting some alternative to what we're complaining about, right? <laughs> that would be a way of, you know, kind of engaging people in a current behavior, but extending it into something that's more constructive and positive. So with that as background, let's shift into the leadership realm. And let me ask you, how do you believe believe that leaders should assess culture? How can they assess the culture of their organization? Well, my view is they can't do it alone. They can't just decide that they have a grip on what's accurate. And, you know, I'm a researcher at UC Berkeley. I I am a data-oriented person, and um, early in my career, I developed with Charles O'Reilly at Stanford and Dave Caldwell at the University of Santa Clara, uh, a quantitative approach to assessing organizational culture. And it reflects all of these beliefs we have about culture, that it's, you know, how the priorities are ordered within an organization, and we're able to measure the content of the culture as, as well as its strength. Um, meaning how much people agree about what's important and how much intensity there is behind that. So I think, you know, really enlightened leaders would gather at least their leadership team together to try to obtain a systematic assessment of their culture, a kind of culture audit. And whether you do it formally through a tool like mine or informally by simply surfacing what the current norms are. What do you see as the, you know, the most prevalent behaviors that people are, are enacting? And then I would ask them to ask the question, well, given your strategy going forward over the, say, next one to three years, what would be the top norms and behaviors if you were fully executing on your strategy. So I'm interested in kind of a gap analysis because in every organization, there's going to be some things that are going right, some keeper norms that you want to keep going, and some things that are maybe not being emphasized enough or are being overemphasized that you want to tone down. And particularly during eras where the strategy is shifting, I think leaders ought to take a serious look at their culture to see if it's well-suited to executing on that strategy. In medicine, there are many cultures. Departments have different cultures. Pediatric is different than adult medicine, very different than surgery. Um, you have cultures of doctors versus cultures of nurses. If you were in charge of an entire healthcare system, how would you approach this diversity of culture in a single organization? Yeah, I mean, you know healthcare organizations well. 
I think all organizations would describe themselves as having significant subcultures, just, just as healthcare does. You know, they'd look a little different, maybe they're by region or by product or even by employee tenure. You know, have you, were you here during the merger, right? That's going <laughs> to affect your outlook on things. So I think all organizations believe they have subcultures. And my view is that subcultures can be very, very constructive for organizations because they enable kind of at a local level people to solve the really pressing problems of their part of the organization. So I think that's fine. But there needs to be some glue that holds all of these subcultures together. And so what I'd like to encourage leaders to think about is one or two overarching norms that kind of define the organization and um, that really focus people on, on some priority. So in healthcare, of course, an obvious priority would be patients. And, you know, really people in all parts of the organization can rally around a focus on prioritizing patients, regardless of what that means in their part of the organization, right? Even the accounting department, right? And how you do billing could have a patient orientation to it. Um, and so I think it's important for leaders to think about that glue that that binds together all these different subcultures and it smooths the kind of coordination across different units of an organization to have that sh sort of shared identity. Um, and the research shows that that's, you know, quite valuable. If a leader takes over an organization or is promoted into a leadership role within an organization, does the assessment that you're recommending and either concludes that the culture that exists is just not that uh, positive for the goals of the organization or sees an external threat that is coming aboard for which the historical culture won't be able to adequately address it, how can leaders start to evolve that culture and change the norms? Yeah, I think new leaders are in a great position. I mean, it's a precarious position, but a great position to kick off a kind of cultural shift. Um, and the way to start is to start with strategy and to start with what are the realistic conditions out there that we need to solve for and you know take advantage of. Um, and given those challenges, what do our top priorities and behaviors need to be. So I think culture needs to be derived from your strategic aspirations. And in many cases, most cases, when succession occurs at the senior level of an organization, there is a strategic shift that's occurring as well. So it's absolutely the best time to be thinking about culture change too. Um, I, th I think I I would advise new leaders in particular to balance change with some continuity. That is to be explicit about the keeper norms, the things that have been working and the things that people are proud of within the organization. I would try to highlight those as well as you're introducing some, some shifts in how things are prioritized. Um, let me give you an example. <clears throat> I, I wrote a case about Genentech, which is a pharmaceutical company. And one of the senior leaders in the organization who was running one of the three major divisions within Genentech um, 
Genentech Immunologic and Ophthalmologic Group, which was called GEO. Um, she, there, a big restructuring had occurred and uh, it was at a time when Genentech was also merging with Roche. So there was a lot going on in the organization and she was appointed to this new division, GEO, which was basically all the remnants, all the leftover drug franchises that were not in the oncology world. So the other two divisions in Genentech, and if you know about Genentech, they've made some real strides in, in cancer treatment. So, you know, the sexy part of the organization was to work in oncology. So this, this leader, Jennifer Cook, got, got given this kind of random amalgamation of, of drug franchises. Um, and she had to decide sort of what to do. And then her boss, the CEO of Genentech, basically said, well, within five years, not only am I giving you this random group of drug franchises, I want you to triple the business within five years. Um, you know, grow it from a billion dollars to $3 billion and from 100,000 patients served to 300,000 patients served. And I want you to consolidate these drug franchises. So huge aspirational goals. And so Jennifer and her team developed their strategic focus and then they surveyed the organization to try to understand what the current culture was. And they did this gap analysis. Here's the current culture. Here's what we would need to be doing if we were fully executing on this new strategy going forward. And they developed four pillars for the culture. And a couple of them were pretty well in place already. One was integrity, right? That makes good sense. You're making medicines that sick people are going to ingest into their bodies. Um, a second was a patient focus, which was there, but not as prioritized as it needed to be. Um, a third was a people focus because the people who worked in this organization needed to have very specialized skills and they were hard to find and hard to replace. And what was the other one? Integrity, people, patients, oh, and innovation. And notice what's not on that list. What's not on that list was a results focus, which was interesting because that had been the primary cultural orientation. You know, every every number was detected, right? There were huge numbers of reports being produced. People were scrambling to make their quarterly numbers. That's what the organization was kind of all about. And what Jennifer said to people was, um, First of all, we need to highlight some of the things that we care most about our patients um, and we need to innovate because we need to figure out how to work well together. And this is, you know, Genentech is a publicly traded company. So she didn't say to people and don't worry about results at all. What she said is we need to back off slightly on our obsessive focus on short-term financial results in order to make room for really thinking through you know our patients' needs and really thinking about innovation. So this is a this is a typical kind of culture change. It's not a wholesale. Okay, we're never doing those things again, and we're only doing these things now. It's more like a reshuffling of the priorities that are already on the table, and leaders are typically doing that through different strategic phases of the organization's you know evolution. You're trying to optimize during a strategic phase, what couple of cultural elements do we really need to put in place in order to get us across the finish line for this strategic era? And then in the next one, you know, what do we need to back 
back off on and what do we need to emphasize more? So it should not, and, and the biggest mistake I see leaders make is not recognizing that there needs to be a balanced budget of culture. What most leaders do when they embark on culture change is they just make the list of cultural priorities longer. And, you know, that is a, a terrible solution because it causes many, many more competing priorities that people can't resolve. If there is a lower level employee of an organization who feels as though they're in an organization with a toxic culture, but perhaps this individual is in their dream job, um, to what extent can a lower level employee actually foster and drive culture change, um, especially if there is a toxic culture and it starts at the top? Uh, what advice do you have for an employee in this situation? And do you feel they will ultimately leave, need to leave their job? Yeah, I think they shouldn't leave without first trying. Um, and I, I think that people, individual contributors, people who are, you know, as you say, low, lower level employees have more potential influence than they may think they do. And so the first thing I would do is start to talk to peers about the ideas that you have and see whether you get any, you know, any resonance from, from others. Are people seeing the same things that you're seeing? Um, can you, you know, generate some collective focus on things that are not going as well and, you know, promote the things that are going well? So I would try to reach laterally um, and, and try to gather some steam that way. But I would, you know, you, you, ultimately you would also have to convince the leader of your group that real change needs to occur. And there's this great article um, out of Harvard Business Review from many, many years ago, but it's a classic. Um, it's called Managing Your Boss by Jack Gabarro. And it really talks about how you can appeal to a boss based on what you understand your boss is trying to accomplish. And if you can frame the changes you're interested in making in terms of what your boss cares about, then you stand a much better chance of being able to make those kinds of changes. Um, you know, if you could frame it in terms of making your boss's life easier, then you're much more likely to be able to get clearance to, to go through and, and make some of those changes. So I think those are the two fir first steps that I would take is you know, consulting with others around you to see if they're seeing the same things that you're seeing and, you know, trying out your ideas for improvement on them. And then, you know, going to the boss and saying, hey, you know, I have these ideas. I think they're going to make your life easier. Um, I think we're all going to look better if we can do some of these things. Um, what do you think? I think you've written about the robber's cave experiment in some of your research. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about it and what you think the lessons are from that experiment to leadership in today's very complex and quite contentious world? Yeah. Um, so the robber's cave experiment is really an experiment that shows that even when you, that, that it's very easy to invoke competition between groups. Um, you can even define people on very arbitrary traits like their eye color. And if you set them up in groups, they will be highly, highly 
anti-competitive, but you can also reverse that effect by creating, you know, collectivistic goals, shared goals. Um, so, so the translation into organizational settings is that organizations are by definition collective entities. We organize because there are things we can do together that no individual could accomplish on their own. And so the big challenge at the most basic level of organizations is how to avoid what we call process losses, which is you know, the loss in efficiency by trying to coordinate people, um, you know, and, and gain this benefit of collective effort. Um, and so my research has really looked at how we can invoke cultural orientations, particularly around this concept of cooperation or um, collectivism, we often call it, that really allows people to have a shared identity within an organization and to sort of fold collectively into, you know, an organization that is moving together and synced up and able to do handoffs easily and collaborate across units fairly easily. And that this is advantageous for organizations. It's like the example I gave before in being kind of patient oriented. Um, you know, I'm remembering to, if, if, if I may um, use a couple of examples from when you were CEO, Robbie, because I thought you did some really great things um, at, at Kaiser. One of the things that you did was um, you encouraged these chief of chiefs meetings and you had chiefs at different medical centers of, of similar departments meet together on a regular basis. Um, and I thought that that was brilliant because that's a harder way for people to coordinate, but it's important for people to, you know, have all kinds of ways of making uh, lateral connections within organizations so that they could discover shared practices that would be beneficial and applicable, you know, across those medical centers. And I think one of the examples was um, electronic recording. Um, sort of came out of that process if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So these kinds of structural assists for getting people to think about the broader goals of an organization for sharing best practices, um, these are very, very beneficial in all organizational settings. I can imagine that leaders wanting to unite an organization would have, two options they might consider. One is bring everyone together for a mission-driven purpose outcome, the health of the patient being a great example that you mentioned earlier. I also could imagine them uniting everyone against the common enemy, which would be a competing medical group or maybe against the, uh, the, the payer who will not give enough money to the program to be successful. Is there any literature and data on which is more a successful, a common purpose that is elevated or a common purpose that is designed to defeat a common enemy or to create a common enemy? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know of any research that would differentiate between the two. Reasoning through it, though, I my prediction would be that the positive um, 
force would be the more compelling one and the more sustainable one. Uh, so I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm being uh, uh, biased by the, you know, the vast benefits of being patient focused versus simply, you know, trying to outdo your competitors. Um, often though, outdoing your competitors means that you stand for something that you really care about that distinguishes you from them. So there's some positive quality to it as well. I think in general, you want to strive for those, those positive qualities, you know, and one of the ways, just, just to give you an on the ground example, one of the ways that Jennifer Cook did this back at Genentech was, um, well, there were two really interesting small practices that really got people more focused on patients. One was that they started um, every meeting with a patient story about how a patient was helped uh, by a medication that Genentech Geo was producing. Um, a second thing that they did was they stopped labeling their counts of how much medicine they were selling. They used to call it, here's the number of vials that we sold. Instead, they started counting it in terms of here's the number of patients that we've helped. So you can see sort of doing a kind of audit of these practices that if you're going through it with a kind of deliberate lens around a patient focus, that there are a bunch of very minor tweaks that are going to add up to a very powerful message. Jenny, you're the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs of the House School of Business. How do you apply your research findings to your leadership role? Oh, that's a great question. And I do. I do try to practice what I preach. I think one of the things I try to do most often is I try to remind members of our business school you know, what the big picture is and what we're striving for collectively and why it's important and how much it matters. Um, I find myself thanking people a lot um, and showing gratitude for their efforts uh, on a very regular basis. I think people need to be reminded that you value what they're doing. I try to articulate why I value what they're doing in terms of the cultural elements that we're trying to prioritize within the organization. Um, at the Haas School, we have developed a set of defining leader principles. Um, they are, I will just tell you what they are, question the status quo, uh, confidence without attitude, students always and beyond yourself. And we have really integrated these four defining principles through at last count, something like 180 different processes. Our students apply based on the defining leader principles. Um, our staff are rewarded based on the defining leader principles. Our faculty are recruited and uh, evaluated based on their defining leader principles and so forth. So I, I try to maintain a level of consistency and comprehensiveness in the culture that helps us achieve our strategic goals. And in fact, recently we were recognized by Poets and Quants Magazine, which is like think Vanity Fair for business schools, um, as the most values-driven business, preeminent business school, you know, among the top 10, top 20 business schools, which, which may, you know, helped us realize that this cultural focus was really working. I believe that within five to 10 years, every 
I'll say organization, every department, every team will have a new member, and that's ChatGPT. And I don't mean what exists today. I mean what exists five years from now when it's 30 times more powerful or 10 years when it's 1,000 times more powerful. What do you predict the impact on culture will be as individuals now have to include a generative AI application, relying on it for expertise, advice, assistance, meeting deadlines. How do you think this new revolution in AI is going to change the kinds of work that you've done, the research you've done on organizational culture norms and behaviors? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea. I think, you know, we're still kind of grappling with the question of, you know, hybridized work and what the implications of not being together in person mean from a cultural standpoint. And I think we're getting closer to understanding, you know, when it's really valuable for pe people to be together in person and when it's not as important. And, uh, um, you know, I run the Berkeley Culture Center at, at Haas and, and we actually have a conference coming up in January where we will talk about that very issue. We're also going to talk about the implications of AI. I mean, what, what I think about with AI then is on top of that hybridized work where people aren't going to be meeting in person as frequently, they probably won't know each other as well. Um, and that usually implies that there's slightly less trust. I'm not sure if Amy Edmondson, you know, spoke that way, but that would be her her research. You know, whether there's less trust, less familiarity, people are less willing to ask each other hard questions. They're less willing to challenge each other. Um, and then to have this, you know, intermediary of of AI. Um, and I, I think one of the hardest elements of AI is going to be, to determine when we actually can rely on it and when we need to use human judgment. And I think negotiating that challenge um, is, going to, is going to be an ongoing um, activity for at least the first five years of, of bringing this technology into the workplace. Um, be, you know, beyond that, um, whether there are some efficiencies to be gained, I'm sure there will be, which may mean that, that organizations may shrink in size or that certain functions will will shrink and other functions will you know increase um, because we can gain some efficiencies there that'll be interesting to watch um and I think as with computing generally and and the internet and so forth there were millions and millions of minor advances that led to great efficiencies I think we're going to have to keep an eye on what the unintended consequences are, um, both from a social perspective and from a strategic perspective. I think that's inevitable. Um, so I know that that's a big kind of vacuous answer <laughs> because I really just don't know. Um, we're just kind of getting into this and trying to understand things. I can say in the research world, uh, AI has already been incredibly useful because we can model things that we have partial data for that um, because of, you know, sort of huge computing power, we can act as though we have full data. And so we can answer a lot more questions. At some point, however, that needs to be uh, validated 
in you know the real world. Um, but for now, it's it's actually really working for us. I think one of the most interesting questions will be the way that a generative AI can take someone without a background and make them a moderate expert, someone who's never had an art class, can paint a picture in the style of Rembrandt, someone who's never taken an IT course, can actually code a software application, someone who's never written music, played an instrument, can write a song in the style of Drake as was done. And I think in medicine, you're gonna have people called patients who will now be able to make diagnoses with an accuracy that's gonna to start to approximate the physician's ability, maybe not be quite as good, but be very, very close. And I think that that's gonna create a lot of shifts in our norms and our cultures and our behaviors that's going to be uh, research opportunities for you in the future. But let me ask you one last question. What do you believe is the most important concept you want every listener to remember about your research? Yeah, to me, the most important concept is no matter what you do or don't do, a culture is going to form in your organization and it's going to affect how people behave, how satisfied they are in the organization, how aligned they are with your strategic focus. And to expect that a culture would simply evolve in a way that is functional for the organization is just wrong. So the one thing I would want listeners to take away is being deliberate about culture is absolutely essential. And there are all kinds of, there are three criteria for thinking about an effective culture. It needs to be strategically relevant, strong. We've talked about those two. And it needs to be adaptive over time. And then once you've identified the culture that you would like to create, there are all kinds of levers for how you can change that culture. And you know, one thing I would like people to know is it does not take forever and culture change is possible in reasonable amounts of time. And it takes focusing on the little things like starting meetings with a patient story and renaming you know, your vials. So I would encourage leaders to think very seriously about the high priority behavioral norms that will help them achieve their organization's strategic objectives and how they can influence people to engage in those high priority behaviors more often. Well, thank you, Jenny. I know that all of our listeners, when they look at their organizations that they lead or, their, or the departments that they work in, will now start to see norms as being something that's been all around them and they may not have noticed it before and they'll understand the power to evolve them, to change them, and to have a positive culture that benefits patients, providers, and our country as a whole. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks, Robbie. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and visit our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.